You are listening to KU Radio's only podcast, OU Radio. And it hurts so good. This is Sasha Bloom here with Old Ute Radio. The chuckling over there. <laughs> Emily Means co-hosting today. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Sasha? I'm very excited to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is an exciting time. <laughs> it's a dear pleasure. In studio, we have retired police officer, Sergeant Ron Stallworth, author of The Black Klansman. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Your story is inspiring. Your courage to stand up against racism and the evil on this planet is beautiful. So I thank you for doing that. Thank you very much. And I also thank you for serving, um, you know, for our country and giving up a lot of your freedoms to give back to us. I appreciate that. Yes. So why did you become a police officer? Believe it or not, it was because I wanted to uh, become a high school PE teacher and I wanted to make enough money to put myself through college to do that. But one year into being a cop, I realized that A, I was having too much fun and B, I was making twice as much money as a a, uh, college graduate who was uh, a teacher. So I decided to stick with being a cop. What year was this roughly? Uh, This was back in 1974. So we're just getting out of... (coughs) the real part of racism in the South with the Martin Luther King movement. Did you experience racism being a police officer? Was it hard being a black man and African-American, um, you know, in the West as a cop? Well, I started my career with the Colorado Springs Police Department and I was specifically hired uh, at the age of 19 in a civilian program uh, to integrate a 250-man department that was all white with the exception of two Hispanic officers. Mm-hmm. Well, why did they feel that they needed to bring you in? Because it was an all-white department. Yeah. And uh, they wanted to integrate the department with a uh, black presence. And uh, uh, my interview consisted of a, uh, a lot of uh, questions pertaining to whether I could survive working in an all-white environment. Uh, I was asked on about three occasions, could I function like Jackie Robinson did when he broke the color barrier in uh, professional baseball. A lot of pressure (coughs) on you? Uh, There was a lot of pressure. Uh, I heard a lot of uh, so-called Polish jokes except uh, we placed the Polish with the N-word and uh, I was asked during my interview, uh, my interview panel consisted of the assistant police chief who was white, the captain of the uniform patrol division who was white, and the city personnel manager who was black and they fired a lot of questions at me in which the scenarios were what would you do if someone came and called you the n-word what would you do if an officer called you an n-word what would you do if uh, a citizen called you the n-word this was 1972 when I was 19 years old and uh, I had to respond to those scenarios uh, because they said this is the type of environment you're going to be walking into and you're going to be on probation for one year, you cannot fight back because if you do, you can be fired with, uh, without cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want you to succeed. Um, so how would you respond to these type of scenarios should you uh, be confronted with them? Obviously, I was successful because they hired me. And for the first year, I did come up against some of those scenarios. And for 364 days, I smiled, I took it, on the 365th day, I let it be known, don't do it anymore, because I'm not putting up with it. There's a large, comparatively speaking, there's a large African-American population in Denver, around Colorado Springs. Were they happy to see a black police officer? Denver is about an hour's drive away. It's a totally different environment. Denver had black officers. Okay. What existed in Denver did not exist in Colorado Springs. 
uh, it's like oil and water. We didn't okay. mix, so I didn't know what was happening up there. They didn't know what was happening down in Colorado Springs. So fair enough. Did you apply to become an undercover police officer? No, in the Colorado Springs uh, system, being a detective was not a rank; it was an assignment. Okay. Uh, and in terms of it being an assignment, you had to uh, basically get in with the good old boys, so to speak. And uh, my desire to be an undercover cop was uh, basically I don't like wearing uniforms. <laughs> uh, I'm not a uniform sort of guy. I look good in a uniform. I look damn good. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> but uh, I, did, I never wanted to be a uniform cop. I, I wore a uniform because I had to wear a uniform, and I was very proud to wear my uniform. I wore it for a grand total of 18 months in my entire 32-year career, but uh, from the very beginning of my uh, employment, I wanted to be an undercover cop. I liked the idea of uh, looking like the average Joe citizen, but uh, actually being, uh, being a cop, having a gun and a badge, and blending in with uh, the ranks of society and doing my job in that manner. And from the moment I got sworn in as a 19-year-old uh, uh, police cadet, which was a civilian assignment uh, uh, in preparation for being a cop, from that moment, uh, from the moment that happened, my uh, quest was to become an undercover cop when I turned 21. And uh, that was what I uh, uh, ascribed to be. So the Ku Klux Klan isn't, I don't think it's very well established in Utah. I could be wrong. It's still very present in parts of this country. Was it a, were the Ku Klux Klan very popular in Colorado? To backtrack, yep. <coughs> to backtrack a little bit, you did have a Klan presence in Colorado down in Draper back in the day, a long time ago. Whether it exists today or not, I couldn't tell you, but back in the days when I was working street gangs here, uh, I did establish the fact that there was a Klan presence down in the Draper area. But going back to Colorado, uh, the Klan dominated Colorado politics back in the 1920s and uh, early 30s. It dominated in Colorado to such an extent that Colorado, outside of the Deep South, was one of the uh, most dominated uh, Klan states in the country. Uh, is that because of the railroad system and the mm, ability to move? No. Okay. It was a Klan-dominated state in the sense that the entire congressional delegation was Klan. The governorship was Klan. Wow. The city and county of Denver was Klan. The police chief in Denver was Klan. It was so Klan-dominated that the media uh, stopped spelling Colorado with a C and started <laughs> spelling it with a K. Klan was uh, heavily uh, Republican. Uh, back in the, the 20s, and I might add, to this day, Ku Klux Klansmen tend to uh, lean towards the Republican side of things. That ought to uh, make you think a little bit about where our politics lie today. You're a young man in the police force. Who comes up to you and says, we want you to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, or was that your idea that you presented to your superiors? Nobody told me that. I was sitting in my office. I was a 25-year-old. First of all, I was the first black detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department at the age of 22 years and two months. At the age of 25, I was in the, uh, when I was 22, I was a narcotics detective. At the age of 25, I was assigned to the intelligence unit of the Colorado Springs Police Department. And as part of my job, I was, uh, part of my job at that time was to uh, work adverse uh, subversive groups. The Ku Klux Klan has long been known to be a, uh, a, a d domestic terrorist group. And I was reading the uh, classified ads in the uh, local newspaper one day and I saw an ad that said KKK, Ku Klux Klan for information and then there was a P.O. box. So I answered the ad. I uh, wrote a letter, a note if you will, to this uh, P.O. box pretending to be a white racist. I used all the buzzwords of hate that they like to hear uh, for b various ethnic groups. Uh, I said that I hated uh, the N-word, uh, uh, derogatory terms for uh, Hispanics, for Asians, for uh, uh, Jews. Uh, you name the ethnic group, I used the uh, derogatory term for it. And then I uh, made one crucial mistake. I signed my real name instead of the undercover <laughs> name that I used. Uh, why did I do that? I had a brain cramp that day. Mm -hmm. I signed my name. I gave the undercover uh, phone line, which was untraceable. Uh, 
I gave the undercover address, which was untraceable, and uh, I put the letter in the mail and forgot about it. About a week later, I get a phone call to the uh, undercover phone line. I answered it, and the voice on the other end said, may I speak to Ron Stallworth? No one called Ron Stallworth <laughs> at that line. So I kind of uh, freaked out a little bit, and I said, this is Ron Stallworth. Who is this? He identified himself as Ken, and his name is mentioned in my book. And he said, I got your letter. And he said, why do you want to join the Klan? And I, I repeated what I had said in the letter. And then I added a little spice to it. I said, my sister is dating an inward person. I said, and every time he puts his filthy black hands on her pure white body, it makes my skin crawl. I said, and I want to do something to stop that for future generations. His response to me was, you're just the kind of person we're looking for. When can we meet you? Wow. And that's when I started to think, okay, I got something going here, and I have to do some fast planning. So I told him that uh, I couldn't meet him right then and there, but I could in about a week, which gave me time to put, formulate a plan. And he said, fine. We talked a little further, and uh, during the uh, furtherance of our talk, he said uh, that uh, he identified himself as being a soldier stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. And he said that uh, part of the plans that the Klan had was they wanted to bomb a uh, uh, couple of gay bars that we had. We had two gay bars in Colorado Springs. He said they wanted to bomb two gay bars. Now, I'm, my attention is really focused at this point. Um, so he said he wanted to, they wanted to bomb two gay bars. Uh, he said he had reconna reconnaissance training, which meant they he had a little knowledge of explosives. So I'm really interested at this point. So he tells me this. He tells me that they planned to have what he called a poor white folks Christmas. By that he meant this investigation started in October of 1978. So at Christmas, he said they wanted to put together care packages for poor white folks. Nothing wrong with that. Very noble idea. But his reasoning is where uh, it took a little uh, slight turn. He said uh, blacks were always being taken care of because they were always exploiting the system via welfare and uh, food stamps, the same rhetoric you're hearing today coming out of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, coming out of the Republican Conservative Congress. But he said uh, the Jews were always, uh, uh, had, always had the blacks to uh, mm -hmm. act as their puppets, but uh, the Jews were always controlling the system because they controlled the money in the, in the, uh, uh, the system. Uh, again, what you're hearing coming out of Congress today. And so he said because the Jews were always controlling the money and the Jews were controlling things and the blacks were the puppets of the Jews, he wanted to do something on behalf of the poor whites who were no one was taking care of. So they wanted to have a poor white folks Christmas. So we talked and agreed to meet a week later. So after I hung up from him, I uh, went across to my narcotics lieutenant, a gentleman I had worked for a year earlier and who had uh, uh, basically released me from narcotics because of a disagreement we had. And I asked him for the use of uh, a white detective by the name of Chuck, who was a good friend of mine. Chuck was the man that I described to Ken on the phone, the, the Klansman. Chuck was my height, my weight, and I knew how Chuck generally came uh, to work, uh, how he dressed. I had described Chuck's clothing to Ken as a means of identifying myself to him. And I asked the lieutenant for the use of Chuck. The lieutenant said, absolutely not. Why? The lieutenant uh, said, I'm not going to waste one of my good undercover officers for a bunch of nonsense like white men tending to be Klansmen. He said, that's a waste of a good undercover, and I'm not going to do it. Absolutely not. The lieutenant did not like me. He had a personal uh, vendetta, a grudge against me, and this was his way of getting back at me. So uh, I said, okay. Now, you have to understand, a police organization is a paramilitary operation. It has a rank structure. You go through the rank structure to get things done. When the lieutenant said no to me, I said, fine. I went back to my sergeant. I told my sergeant what the lieutenant had said to me. The sergeant said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to take it directly to the chief of police. The sergeant didn't bat an eye. He said, let's go. So instead of going to the captain above the lieutenant and then to the assistant chief, which is how our rank structure was, I went directly to the chief of police, and I told the chief what the lieutenant had said. I told him what I had done, that I was uh, had sent this meeting up with Klansmen who were talking about bombing uh, a gay bar, a couple of gay bars, 
And I told the uh, chief, I said, I need to borrow Chuck to pose as me because this is how I've set this thing up. The, the chief got on the phone to the lieutenant and ordered the lieutenant to give me full cooperation in whatever I needed to pull this thing off. And that's how we were able to accomplish this, uh, much to the lieutenant's chagrin. He did not like it, but he had no choice, and he hated me even further. He retired from the department as a deputy chief. He hates me to this day. He's about 80 years old. He hates me to this day, and I hate him back. That's pretty brave of you to, you know, not accept what your boss is telling you and go all the way up to the police chief. Were you nervous doing that, or was that just something that you knew that you had to do? It wasn't brave at all. It's the fact that I don't like being told no. I didn't like the lieutenant. He didn't like me, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let somebody tell me that I can't accomplish something that I know is easily accomplished, and you're simply saying no because you don't like me. Okay. I don't accept that. Mm-hmm. Now, this man named Chuck, your colleague, did you then? Did he start going by Ron Stallworth? I told Chuck what I had said on the phone. I told Chuck, what I need for you to do is go to this meeting in a week's time and pretend like you're me. This is what I've said on the phone. I need you to go into the meeting, pretend like it was you talking on the phone, take the conversation that I had on the phone, follow through with it, Mm -hmm. and see what information you can gleam in a face-to-face contact, take it to the next level, Uh, Get any information you can beyond that get any literature that you can and uh, let's let's run with this and see what happens was Was he wired did he have a gun with him Were there, were there? Undercovers outside of this meeting place for his protection or yes to all of that I was one of the uh, surveillance officers outside he was wired and I was outside in a car listening to his conversation and uh, uh, I actually had two other undercover officers outside listening, both provided by the uh, narcotic officers, uh, by the narcotic officers uh, against the lieutenant's wishes, I might add. And uh, Chuck did have a gun on, uh, and we all had guns on. We did not know what to expect. Uh, it turns out the, the Klansmen were all GIs from Fort Carson. It turns out that they too were armed. Uh, this was back in the days before concealed firearm permits were allowed, so they were illegally carrying guns. I could have arrested them at any time, but we did not do so because we were trying to. This was an intelligence operation, not a criminal investigation at this point in time. We were trying to gather intelligence on the Klan to see where this intelligence would take us. So we were In terms of exposing a larger crime syndicate or in terms of exposing uh, possible larger crime uh, activity in terms of seeing where this would go in terms of the Colorado hate movement we were seeking information we didn't know where it was going to take us and we were hoping it would take us up the higher food chain so to speak so at this point in time we were ignoring the fact that they were illegally carrying weapons I could have arrested them at any time Uh, if I had arrested them for illegally carrying weapons we were probably looking at uh, a one-week uh, uh, stay in jail and maybe a $300 fine. That's a misdemeanor. I wasn't interested in that. So we ignored, we ignored the misdemeanor violation and decided to follow through and see where it, the, the information would take us. Um, when were they planning? I'm sorry, I'm just trying to figure out the, the timeline here. Was this close to the time they were planning to blow up the gay bars? Is that what your main focus was? At the time, we had no further information regarding the talk. It was just talk at it was this just point, talk. blowing up gay bars. Okay. Um, so we were trying to follow through and, mm-hmm. and see where this would lead us. Keep in mind, as Fort Carson soldiers, they had access to a lot of stuff at Fort Carson. They had access to explosives. They had access to automatic weapons, which was part of their day-to-day training. Yeah, so it could have not just been planning. It could have been a very real Thing that had happened. There was a lot of possibilities at at, uh, potential stake here. Mm -hmm. So Chuck's in with this meeting. Are they drinking beers? Are they sitting down to eat? How does this? What What are you hearing with this conversation? Was it jokes? Was it? Oh, it was. It was at a bar, uh, a local hangout for GIs, uh, about five miles from Fort Carson. They uh, were talking, telling Chuck their plans to expand uh, the clan, to to grow the clan. They wanted every member to bring in three new members to 
exponentially uh, increase the ranks of the Klan. They had a master plan. They wanted to uh, uh, exponentially increase the ranks of the Klan. David Duke, the Grand Wizard of one of the factions of the Klan, back in uh, this time period, we're talking 1978, there were three major Klan factions at that time. David Dukes was the premier leader of the Klan, of one of the factions. His Klan faction was estimated to have between three and 5,000 members nation, nationwide. And uh, he was considered the new quote-unquote face of the Ku Klux Klan because David Duke never wore a Klan robe in public. He was good-looking. I'm sorry? He was good-looking. He was articulate. Very good-looking, very articulate. He always wore a three-piece suit in public. He only wore his Klan robe for ceremonial purposes. Uh, he never used the N-word in public. He was, uh, he was very articulate. He was the kind of guy that uh, a mother would want their daughter to go to prom with and bring home for dinner and stuff like that. He's a sociopath, or <laughs> he has similar characteristics of a sociopath. Very much so, yeah. very much so. Uh, and he was a hell of a debater, I might add. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, he was modernizing the face of the Ku Klux Klan. And I hate to say it, but the media played a major role in his... Uh, in his, in his uh, modernization, mm -hmm. uh, because they were giving him a lot of time and space in their various uh, uh, social mediums uh, of the time. But David Duke, uh, they, they, they were uh, forming their, their, their clan locally under the auspices of uh, David Duke's uh, network down in New Orleans. So he was telling Chuck all of this information and uh, what their master plan was, was to f try to get 100 robed Klansmen to have a major march down the main uh, street in downtown Colorado Springs. Now, if your listening audience can picture 100 Klansmen in white robes marching down uh, the main street in Salt Lake City, that's what I was facing back then. It was a show of force and intimidation. From the citizens of Colorado Springs. With their caps from about toe to the top of the cap, they're about seven feet tall, right? Uh, uh, roughly, if you're a 5'10 man, 6' foot man, it, is it, they, those hats really give them a lot of size, right? It, 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 it varies. It yeah. depends. The, the whole idea is seeing a hundred of these guys wearing their white robes can be an intimidating f factor to the average citizen standing on a street corner watching this. Uh, marching in formation, three abreast, four abreast, however many uh, they want to march. And that was their whole idea. David Duke was planning a visit in January of 79. They were trying to get a hundred of them to gathered together as a sign of respect for him and a show of force for the citizens of the city. That's what I was up against. And did they get permits from the city to do this march and all well, that? Well, if they had gotten a yeah. hundred, they would have had to have get, gotten yeah. a permit. Uh, and uh, that's what they were leaning towards. So that's what they were telling Chuck, and uh, basically they wanted to increase the ranks exponentially by requiring every Klansman to get at least three members. So Chuck posing as me, that's one of the things they were telling him to do. So they gave him a packet of information and explained to him about how to join. Chuck grabbed the packet, talked to them for a little bit. He left the meeting. He came back to my office. I filled out the information, and it's in my book. I show the actual application form with a picture of a, it's a grainy black and white picture of Chuck, and I snapped the photograph of Chuck. I filled out the application. I gathered uh, funds from the city, and basically I mailed the application in to David Duke and uh, started my career as a Klansman. I have a membership card in... Uh, listed in the book and I will show you I have carried this membership card in my, oh my wallet goodness. since I got it in 1979 certifying me as a member of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan that card was prepared by David Duke down in Louisiana I was supposed to get it within a couple of weeks when I didn't get it I called him up personally and asked him where my card was and he rummaged around, and uh, I could hear the paperwork. He rummaged around and said he had been having administrative problems and found it, found my application fee, and he said, I'll prepare it personally and put it in the mail to you. And uh, that card was actually prepared by David Duke himself and sent to me, and uh, I've carried it in my wallet since uh, January of 79. I was wondering 
what it was like for Chuck and for you through Chuck um, interacting with these people who are just so blindly full of hate. Did you feel like you were you were excited because you were playing them? You know, you infiltrated and you are the complete opposite of what they believed in, or were you just so angry that it was hard to hard to work this case? You have to understand when you work undercover. You're not doing anything more than acting. Mm -hmm. So like any actor, you're performing. So you suspend your personal feelings regarding how you may truly feel, and you're putting on a performance. Uh, As much as I disliked a lot of the things that they were doing and a lot of the things that uh, I was doing in response to them, uh, a lot of what I was doing obviously was over the phone. So... When I was using the N-word and whatnot, whatnot, a lot of the times I was laughing because they thought I was one of them. So I'm throwing the N-word around because they're throwing the N-word around, Mm -hmm. and I had to pretend to be one of them. And they had no idea. So as I describe in my book, one of the hardest things I had to do, uh, I'd be in my office talking to one of these guys, one of these knuckleheads, and my sergeant would be sitting at his desk listening to my end of the conversation. So I'm talking to one of these uh, white supremacists, and we're talking about uh, the N-word, and I'm throwing that word around with them, and my sergeant would be laughing at me, pretending to be one of them. I'm laughing at my sergeant laughing at me. (laughs) He's laughing even harder as I'm throwing the word around, and it was like a Saturday Night Live skit. (laughs) But it's still very serious. (laughs) It's, It's very serious, but... We're laughing at each other. My sergeant's falling out of his chair laughing. I'm, I'm laughing at him trying to maintain a professional decorum on, on the phone, but I'm laughing so hard at him. Sometimes he's halfway on the floor on one knee laughing at me. A couple of times he was choking to death almost <laughs> that he had to run out of the office, and I'm laughing covering the mouthpiece because I didn't want them to know that I was laughing, and I had to regain my decorum in order to keep up the conversation. It, it was quite comical, so I couldn't, I couldn't take it personally at all, mm-hmm. but it was very serious. And a lot of times I would hang up the phone and curse them from here to high heaven, and that's how I let, out, let off the steam for what I was p- feeling personally. So, again, as an undercover officer, you're performing, you're acting. You can't take it personally. Chuck, on the other hand, was simply pretending to be me. You that know. must have been fun for him. No. So <laughs> he had to suspend his personal identity in order to assume my identity, mm-hmm. and he sacrificed his own individuality in order to become me. This this was a very unique investigation in more ways than one. Did Chuck uh, go to the cross-burning ceremonies that these KKK members do? Nobody ever went to any cross-burning ceremonies because as cops, we can't participate in criminal activity. Okay. And they never pulled off any cross burnings because I knew about them because I was always invited to participate. They never burned a cross in the entire seven months of the undercover phase of this activity because they would call me, invite me to participate. I would mm-hmm. find out the time and date and location. And on those days and times, I would contact my lieutenants and notify them of the location and the time get them where we would normally have one officer patrolling a specific uh, uh, district, we would have maybe three or four extra officers patrolling and focused in on that specific location. They would, and keep in mind, this was in the day before cell phones, so we didn't have instant communication. So we would have three or four extra officers cruising that particular location site, and they would send their guys with their truck and the cross and they told me the, how they were going to burn the cross. They would go to a prearranged location, dig a trench to plant the cross in, and they would soak the cross in kerosene, and they would go to the location with the intent of placing the cross in the trench. And then they would uh, take a, a, a cigarette, smoke the cigarette down till there was about maybe a minute left. And they told me they got this from watching a James Bond movie. They would smoke the cigarette. I'm not joking. It's it's all in my book. They would smoke the cigarette down till about an inch of it, about a minute was left in in the cigarette for burning. Then they would take a matchbook. They would place a matchbook or intended to place a matchbook at the base of the kerosene soap cross, stick the cigarette in there, let it burn down that final minute, and then that would ignite the matchbook, which in turn would ignite the kerosene soap 
cross and that minute would give them time to get away. So they would cruise to the location with the intent of placing the cross in the trench, but once they got to the location, they would see police cars cruising north, south, east, and west at the location, and they would freak out and decide better against placing the cross mm -hmm. in there and call it off. So it wouldn't be until 24 hours later that I would uh, get a phone call from them and they would tell me, I would ask them, well, how did the cross burning go? Uh, we got there and we saw there were so many cars cruising the area, we thought better of it, so we didn't play, plant the cross. This happened on three occasions, so during the entire seven months of this investigation, no cross was ever burned in Colorado Springs because of the fact that they notified me of it and I was able to prevent it. And for our younger audience, the, burning, the cross, they're enormous, right? A burning cross is a symbol for them. You gotta understand, the Ku Klux Klans consider themselves devout Christians. Yeah. A fire, the burning of a fiery cross is considered a religious, a highly sentimental religious ceremony to them. They don't consider it sacrilegious, they consider it a religious ceremony. And I, they told me on several occasions, this is a high honor to be invited to participate mm -hmm. in a cross burning. So I was basically interfering with one of their high religious ceremonies. Um, and it was something that I was very proud to do. Let me just ask you a question. Is, is there a constitutional issue with interfering with a cross-burning ceremony because they see it as a religious thing? I, I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, first of all, the burning of a cross from a police standpoint is vandalism. Okay. So mm -hmm. had, they, had they followed through and gotten caught, they would have all been arrested for vandalism. Even on private property? On private property? Yeah. Like if they went Unless to a they big ranch? If they had permission from an owner to do it on his property, okay. that an owner can do what they want in their property as long as it's not a considered a safety hazard. Okay. So as this case is developing, what are you starting to learn about the Ku Klux Klan? You know, let's say you're in month four of this investigation and Chuck is continually infiltrating and you're infiltrating these clans. What are you starting to learn about them? They were a bunch of knuckleheads for one. Yeah. Uh, they still had, they had a lot of potential to cause a lot of havoc. They intended to cause a lot of havoc. They were uh, uh, serious threats to the community in terms of what their intended and stated purpose was. But for one thing, they were a bunch of bumbling knuckleheads. Uh, for one, they should have recognized they were dealing with two different people. Chuck's voice is totally, distinctly different than mine. <laughs> if you were sitting here nope. <laughs> talking to him right now, you would recognize that he is a different person than me, just on voice alone. And yet they never figured out they were talking to two different people. One time, my voice was challenged. Chuck went to a meeting for about an hour with them. He came back from the meeting because he had to deal with his personal narcotics business. Uh, and... About an hour after he left his meeting, I called Ken up, the Klan leader, local Klan leader, and I talked to him on the phone about something that took place in the meeting. And during the course of my conversation with him, we talked for about 20 minutes, and midway through the meeting, he said, your voice sounds different, what's the matter? How come you sound different? Right. And I coughed, and I said, oh, I have a sinus infection. He said, oh, I get those all the time. Here's what you need to do to take care of it. And he proceeded <laughs> to give me a remedy for it. So that was the only time during the entire undercover phase that I was ever challenged as to why I sounded different than Chuck. My, my undercover story with him was so secure that he never felt like uh, he needed to challenge me on it. And that just shows you that I literally, without sounding uh, like I'm bragging, I literally had him in the palm of my hand in terms of uh, how strong my undercover identity was in his mind. I had planted myself so firmly in his mind as being a white racist like him that he never felt threatened by me. Was Chuck moving up the ranks pretty quickly then? It's interesting you ask that. These guys were military personnel. As military, they ship in, they ship out. Ken was being uh, in the process of being transferred out of the Army. And at one point, he had a meeting with, um, uh, he had a discussion with me on the phone, and he had a discussion with Chuck at one of the personal face-to-face uh, -face meetings with Chuck, and he revealed to both of us that 
they had taken a unanimous vote and decided that they wanted to have local leadership assume control of the Klan because of uh, stability purposes, and they had decided that they wanted Ron Stallworth to become the local leader of the Colorado Springs chapter because he had proven to be a loyal and dedicated Klansman. <laughs> Ironic, huh? It's unbelievable. Were you and your colleagues, when you weren't on the phone, when Chuck wasn't pretending to be a client, were you just laughing hysterically at how absurd these men are? Because you get the hatred, the over-the-top hatred, and there's a systemic problem with that, but then the ignorance is astounding. That's why I said they were a bunch of bumbling knuckleheads, <laughs> but yet they, had, yet they had the potential to be a major threat because, mm -hmm. again, they had access. They were, they were soldiers. They had access to, to bomb explosives. They had access to automatic weapons. They had aligned themselves with a local right-wing paramilitary group called the Posse Comitatus, who is a major threat in Colorado Springs circles. The Posse Comitatus is a forerunner of the... Uh, uh, militia groups that formed later in the 80s and 90s across the country. And the Posse Comitatus and the Klan talked about the Klan stealing automatic weapons from Fort Carson, which these guys had the capability of yeah. doing if they intended, if they uh, had chosen to do so. So uh, this again was something of major concern to, 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 to me as a police officer. The potential for them stealing uh, fully automatic weapons from the ranks of the military, okay? They didn't do it, but they had the potential to do it. They also, the fact that uh, the Klan tried to link up with the Posse Comitatus, if they had done so, it would have increased their ranks and uh, brought them up to the tune of about 50 people. Uh, so they would have been halfway towards their total of 100 in terms of uh, that march they were planning for David Duke, which never came off. They were a bunch of bumbling uh, knuckleheads <laughs> But at the same time, they had the potential to cause havoc in my city. At one point, they uh, were linked uh, with the American Nazi Party out of Denver. We had uh, a meeting in Colorado Springs that Chuck and um, uh, a second officer I had gotten undercover into the group. They had a meeting, and at present at that meeting was a member of the Alabama KKK who was in the city. He was the, the Grand Dragon or the state leader for the Alabama KKK. Uh, along with the leader of the Louisiana Grand Dragon, or state leader, and the American Nazi Party, okay? Mm -hmm. And also present was the head of the Posse Comitatus. These were all far right-wing groups mm -hmm. meeting with the local KKK group. I was in touch with the Anti-Defamation League out of Denver. They were in on my, uh, on my um, uh, scheme and were advising me, and they in turn were in touch with their leadership out of uh, New York. Yes, so, and for those who don't know, the ADL is a Jewish association that formed after World War II to protect uh, Jews, to protect be an Jews advocate. And to monitor yeah. right-wing hate groups yes. who were considered a major threat to, to uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, people. Yes. And I was in touch with the Anti-Defamation League people out of Denver and I kept them abreast of what I was doing, and they proved invaluable to my investigation. Generally, police officers don't uh, do what I did, but I, I decided to invite them into my investigation, and I never regretted doing so. When I informed them of this linkage, they in turn contacted their New York office, their New York headquarters. Their New York headquarters told them that I had uncovered something that they didn't know, that the Klan linking up with the Posse Comitatus was uh, something that they had not been able to prove, uh, had never proved until just just then. So uh, it, w it was uh, major news to them. The very fact that uh, we had connected the dots from the Klan to the Posse Comitatus and subsequently to the American Nazi Party, they were very excited about establishing that connection. Well, it's an important connection to establish. So what I want to do right now, I want to go to a quick break. When we get back, I'm very interested to hear about the day you guys bust them. Then I want to get into your book, why you wrote it, your writing process. So I really appreciate you coming in, and we'll be right back, everybody. Your summer just got a whole lot better. 
All Ute Radio is now streaming live two nights a week on KUteRadio.org. Listen every Tuesday and Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Or catch the podcast on demand. Yes! And we're back with Sergeant Ron Stallworth. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Thanks for staying through the break. I greatly appreciate it. So, what we've established so far is that the Ku Klux Klan is a very bizarre organization. Not only are they filled with hate, but they're not the smartest people. And you were able to take advantage of their brilliance by completely infiltrating them. You might say that. Yes. (laughs) It's a stunning story. I encourage all of you to go out and buy his book, The Black Klansman. It reached Amazon's top three, right, at one point? It was number three about a little more than a month ago. It reached number three. Uh, the book is actually called Black Klansman, not the, but Black Klansman. Okay. Um, can they go to Barnes & Noble and buy it? And no. It okay. can only be bought through Amazon.com or on uh, my website, blackklansman.com. Uh, and Johnny McKeon was telling me that it's available for Kindle and all those types of devices, too? Kindle and Nook. Okay. Beautiful. So... You were telling me that I spoke incorrectly by saying that you busted them. That didn't happen. No, they, they were never arrested. Why? Uh, it's an interesting story in terms of how the investigation came to a conclusion. Um, as I told you, they took a unanimous vote at one point and decided that they wanted Ron Stallworth to become the local leader of the Colorado Springs chapter <laughs> of the Ku Klux Klan. And they kept pressing the issue. Obviously, we didn't want that to happen uh, because of entrapment issues. I, I wanted it to happen. I felt like with consultation with a local prosecutor, we could have mm-hmm. pulled it off uh, up to a certain extent and probably could have penetrated the Colorado hate movement higher than it had ever been penetrated before by law enforcement. I believe that then, I believe it now, that we could have done that. But my chief of police, who was fairly new in his position by about two years, uh, when I went to him and told him about the news, he basically said, I want you to shut the investigation down, and I want to shut it down now. Close the uh, uh, undercover post office box, close the uh, uh, undercover phone line, change it, Uh, do not go to any more meetings, uh, basically, I want Ron Stallworth, Black Klansman, to disappear. And, because uh, of death threats? Because it was getting expensive? No. The total expense of this investigation, believe it or not, probably totaled no more than $300 in terms of what we spent. That was membership cost, uh, Chuck going to meetings and, and so forth. And when I say going to meetings, I mean Go to ha- beers. Ha- going to uh, bars yeah. and having a beer here, a beer there, that type yeah. thing. Basically, uh, there wasn't no such thing as uh, 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 cost, expense, threats, or anything. It was the chief basically said he did not want the public to find out that we had undercover cops into the Klan. Even though the chief approved this investigation, he was kept abreast of this investigation, we did not violate any departmental policy. We did not violate any city ordinance. We did not violate any state law. We did not violate any constitutional law. Were there politicians involved? No. So why? I don't get the logic. Mm, I never understood (laughs) it, and I argued against the chief's decision to close it. My sergeant argued against the chief's decision to close it. The chief was adamant, shut the investigation down. Was he he a Klansman? No. There was no such thing as any officer in the department being involved in the Klan. That would never factored into it whatsoever. He just said, shut the investigation down. When he said this, he took it a step further. He said, destroy all the files that you have accumulated pertaining to this. And I had a notebook that probably was, uh, I don't know, five inches thick with reports that we had written about the meetings and, and phone calls and everything else. I argued against that. He said, I don't want any evidence that may exist that shows that we have been involved in the Ku Klux Klan. I argued against that. So after arguing to the extent that I could, I said, yes, sir, 
my sergeant and I walked out of his office. We both were cussing. Uh, we probably invented a few cuss words <laughs> on our own. But we went back to our office, and I shredded a report here, a report there. And when my sergeant walked out of the office, I took that notebook. I walked out of the office with a notebook, went to my car, drove home with that notebook, and I have it in Layton to this day. And that is what I based my book on. I wrote that book based on the reports that I basically took from my department in violation of uh, policy, <laughs> and I have never regretted it for 35 years, and I would do it over again if I had to. So in these last 35 years, you you haven't had a real thought that there might have been corruption behind the closing of your investigation? There was no corruption. I don't understand. I, I guess you don't understand why either then, huh? There was never any explanation, but there was no corruption whatsoever. That's not a factor. So did it uh, seem like there was no point to all the time and effort you put into it or what did what did it feel like what did you do i don't <laughs> uh that's something i've asked myself over and over again there was no corruption yeah. the chief uh freaked out the chief came for he was a lieutenant in charge of the public relations uh, section of our department when he got elevated to the ranks of the uh chief's position he was very public relations conscious. Mm -hmm. It was a publicity kind of thing. He was concerned about how the public would respond to the fact that we had undercover cops in the Ku Klux Klan. That's what I think was the whole factor behind it, is how will you deal with this from a public relations standpoint. Uh, and I argue that they will welcome us with open arms, sounding like Dick Cheney in Iraq, <laughs> I guess. Uh, that, that was my position as we were doing something positive that the public will mm -hmm. respond positively to, the chief uh, took a different position, and he was chief. His argument won out, basically. Uh, but there was no corruption in our ranks. We had no officers. I knew everything that was going on in our department in terms of who was involved in the Klan. Uh, who was involved in the Klan was me, Chuck, and the officer who was described in the book by name. His name is James Rose. He's the only one that agreed to participate with me in the making of this book. Chuck chose not to involve himself with it. Uh, uh, I used the name Chuck, but uh, he chose uh, uh, that officer chose not to work with me. The officer identified in my book is James Rose. That is his real name. He agreed to have himself identified, and uh, they were the only two officers that were involved in the investigation along with me. And um, we were the only ones that had any connection to the Klan in the Colorado Springs Police Department. So when this is done, then you have another 20 years of service. Um, not with that department. Not with that department, but just in, as a man, right? Several years ago, Dave Chappelle had a show. There was a skit on the black Ku Klux Klan's men. Yeah. Did, did they know, did the writers, did he, did he know, did know about it? The citizens of Colorado Springs did not know this investigation took place until two years ago when I went back there. Officers within the department knew here and there about what I was doing. Believe it or not, word leaked out about this crazy black cop who had joined the Klan uh, <laughs> because uh, cops being cops have loose lips. Uh, we had a local bar, a local cop bar across from the courthouse where cops used to congregate after work and have a little uh, a drink here or there, I occasionally would go to that bar and I would walk in and people would say, hey, tell us about your clan, show us your clan card, that type of thing. Uh, I, was, I was like a novelty, kind of like a pet, if you will. And uh, uh, before the term designated driver came into vogue, I was kind of like the designated driver of the group that I hung out with because I don't drink alcohol and I would go in and have a Coke or orange juice and uh, they would ask to see my clan card, and you know, I'd show them the clan card, and they would all laugh about the crazy black cop who joined the Ku Klux Klan and pat me on the back and buy me a round of drinks, which I don't drink. And, you know, <laughs> Thanks for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> buy me a Coke. <laughs> uh, I remember one occasion I was testifying in an old drug trial of mine, and during a break in the action with the trial attorneys, the, the judge leaned over and put his hand on the mic and said, what's going on with your clan investigation? I said, how do you know about that? He said, oh, everybody in the courthouse is talking about it. So it was no, it was no great secret, which is another wonder why the Klan didn't find out about it. It was no great secret, but um, ironically, we would manage to pull it off for the 
seven months of the undercover phase of the investigation without it leaking out to everybody, like I said, it, it, uh, we, we, we pulled it off. The ironic part of the thing is that during the course of this investigation, I was able to uh, keep it under wraps long enough to where um, cops within the department tried to ingratiate themselves with me by, uh, oh, well, I had, I tell the story about one officer in particular, Officer Ed, who was trying to ingratiate himself with me by trying to get on my good side by showing me what a good investigator he was by interacting with Klansmen, uh, working with me, alongside with me, and trying to get information from the Klan so that he could show what a good cop he was and hopefully get assigned to work with me by writing reports and get information on the Klan that would impress me enough to where I would put a good word in for him so that he would be assigned to work with me and all the stuff he was getting was old stuff, not valuable or worthy, and I had to go tell the sergeant, you need to shut him down and tell him to back off, because all he's doing is interfering, you know? I had several other officers who would come to me with information that they thought was valuable, that was worthless, because they were trying to ingratiate themselves with me, because they found out that this investigation was going on and they thought it was unique and something worthwhile and wanted to work themselves into my investigation. It, it was a lot of different things going on at the time. Did you always want to write a book on this subject? Like, once you, once years se- separated between this case and you? I threatened to write, I've threatened to write a book for <laughs> 35 years, and it wasn't until about a little more than a year ago that I actually sat down and put pen to paper. I pulled the notebook out that I walked out of with, uh, with all the files and everything, I pulled it out and actually uh, started putting pen to paper and writing the book. It took me about a year to actually complete it. Why did you want to get the story out? The story is unique. Uh, The pages are getting old and yellowed, and uh, I figured now is the time to finally do it. And uh, I figured if I didn't do it now, I probably never would do it, and just decided now is the time. So we have... You know, I'm a journalist by trade. She's going to be a journalist. Often we have tons of comics come in, you know, musicians, and we always want to know about the writing process to help whether it's just us or our listeners really learn how to write, learn how to organize their thoughts. Take me through your writing process with your book. In this particular book, I wrote the first 30 pages, read them, poured up, threw it away and started all over again because I didn't like the first 30 pages I had written. It just didn't click with me. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why. I just didn't <laughs> like what the, third page, what the first 30 pages read like. Okay. When I first wrote it, I thought it sounded good, but after reading it again, uh, it just didn't sound right, and so I tore it up and started all over again. When I write, uh, believe it or not, my writing process is I write from uh, between 10 p.m. and around 3 or 4 in the morning. Uh, that's when I, creatively, that's when I think the best. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it's crazy, but that's no, when my... That's, that's when, when I write all my papers. <laughs> no. That's, when that's my, because I'm lazy, though, so... <laughs> well, that's when my creative juices actually start flowing the best. It's 10 p.m. to about 3 or 4 in the morning. Were you doing this every single night, seven days a week? Did you structure, you know, how many days you would work on it? Believe it or not, when I was a police officer, that's when I was writing my reports, was 10 p.m. to 3 or 4 in the morning. Okay. I'd have to be at work at uh, 7 or 8 in the morning, but that's where I was writing my reports, was 10 to 3 or 4 in the morning. Did uh, you have, I'm sorry, did you have any help writing this book? No. Did you have, like a ghostwriter or anything? No, this is, this, I like is all, that. this is all me. I don't, I don't believe in a ghostwriter. Keeps it honest. I like it. No, no one can think like I can. No one knows what goes on inside my mind or knows my feelings, knows what was happening. I can tell somebody what was happening, but you can't capture what exactly mm-hmm. is going on in the moment. Everything in here is, is me. I did have somebody editing my work, and I didn't. Believe it or not, this book was actually 25 pages longer. Uh, I'm not totally happy with the editing that took place. Cause I, like every writer, it's your baby, and you don't like your baby to be cut up into little bitty pieces. Yeah. And 25 pages were cut up. For example, Jim, uh, Jim Rose, the other officer that was undercover, uh, 
I had a two and a half hour. He is a uh, liaison with the El Salvador ambassador's office right now. He retired with the Drug Enforcement Administration and now he works for the El Salvador ambassador's office. He and I spoke about this case for the first time in about 30 years by phone. And uh, it was the first time in 30 years we had talked about it. And we talked for about two and a half hours about this case. He revealed something to me that I never knew about. He told me that uh, Ken, the officer, the KKK guy that we initiated this case with, Ken tried to recruit him to be the sergeant at arms or the bodyguard for him uh, during the course of this investigation. I never knew that. That was part of uh, this, the uh, 25 pages that was cut. But we talked for two and a half hours and then that I had that two and a half hour uh, conversation as part of that 25 pages. And that was edited out in part because a lot of what we talked about was a rehash of everything else that's in here. And my editor felt like it was nothing more than a rehash of what's already been discussed. But there were some things in there that was not a rehash and that I felt should have stayed in there. But my editor felt like, you've talked about it already, so let's cut it out. Mm -hmm. So um, I wasn't totally happy with that, but I understood the reasoning behind it. My editor also uh, is a very conservative gentleman. I had about two pages in there in which I make comparisons about the, uh, uh, as I've talked about, the Republican uh, uh, Conservative Congress of today and David Duke. I had about two and a half pages of discussions comparing the two. My editor cut that out because, in his opinion, that would be offensive to our conservative listening audience and our conservative readership, and uh, he felt like that would prove too offensive to them. So he left probably a sentence, maybe two sentences in there, and cut the rather two pages out. He agreed to let me keep it in there if I truly wanted it in there, but he said, we're trying to sell books. Do you really want to keep it in there? And I thought about it, so ultimately I decided, okay, I'll, I'll let it stay out as long as it has those two sentences in there, and they, they are in there, but I wasn't really happy about that. So you have to give a little in order to get a little, and um, that's the uh, trade-off that goes with writing a book. But basically everything, every word in here is me, with the exception of one word here, one word there for mm -hmm. it that uh, you know was changed. That's the writing process I go through. And so now you have a movie deal. There's a documentary that's in the works about you in this story. Are you thrilled about that? Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that your story makes it to Hollywood? When you write a book, you don't write a book with the intentions of it becoming a bestseller on anyone's bestseller list, whether it's Amazon, New York Times, book review, or whatever the case may be. That's not your purpose in writing a book. You write a book because you feel the need to write a book um, you feel the need to get your story out, not to do a bestseller. You don't write a book with the intentions of writing a book to have your story become a movie. You write a book for a specific reason. You don't write a book in order to get rich either, I might add. A lot of people think, oh, you've got money coming in. It's not happening. I get a royalty check every six months, and it's not a big royalty check by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not... Uh, What's the gentleman that wrote the Da Vinci Code? Uh, Dan, Green. Dan, Dan Brown. Brown. Dan Brown. No, this isn't a Dan Brown operation by any stretch of the imagination, not even close. So no more books from Ron Stallworth? Or? Uh, Ron Stallworth will write some more books, but uh, Ron Stallworth is writing because he loves writing. Not That's good. Because he's trying to write the great American novel. I felt the need to get this story out. I felt it was a unique story. I felt the story needed to be told, and I wanted to tell it. But I didn't write it for a specific reason other than, uh, other than that. People, I know friends of mine in law enforcement who feel like they want to write a story because they want to get rich, and they feel like writing that story will get them rich. That wasn't my intention. I wanted this story out not because I wanted to get rich off of writing the story, and I want people to understand that. The fact that I sold the option for this story to a Hollywood production company a major Hollywood production company, never in my wildest dreams did I think that was going to happen. That just did happen. I, uh, three days ago, I sold the rights to a British production company to do a documentary for the United Kingdom. 
that just happened uh, wasn't the intent for writing the story. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. So people need to understand when you write a book, you should write it for the love of writing, not because there's a specific intent of wanting to get rich, of wanting to have a movie made of it or anything like that. All of those things happen because the stars are in alignment and uh, Venus, Jupiter, and Mars <laughs> line up and things, things just come together. So in closing up this interview, one thing I always ask our guests is, what's the best way to become a successful person and how do you develop a, a work ethic? Hopefully you're born with a work ethic. <laughs> uh, you want to do the best that you can in whatever field that you're in no matter what that field may be. You can't train somebody to be successful. You have to want to be successful. And being successful means that you work hard at whatever endeavor that uh, you're engaged in. You work hard, you study hard, uh, you study, you work at it, uh, you continually work at it, you never stop working at it. With uh, work, with study, comes a little bit of luck. And when you put all three of those together, uh, as I said before, the stars come in alignment and uh, things, good things can happen. And uh, if they don't happen, you continually uh, work at it to try to make it happen. But uh, whatever it is, you must first of all believe in yourself even when others don't believe in you. And believe me, I've had people over the years tell me that uh, my writing this story, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when this story first broke nationally in 2006, I had one individual tell me uh, that she couldn't see what the big deal was all about. She said it was an interesting story, but I just don't see what the big deal is all about and why people would be interested in wanting to know about it. Uh, I wish I could see that individual now so I could say, ha ha, I told you, <laughs> you know. I believed in it all along, even when she didn't, and uh, I've never given up on it. And all the people who laughed at me and thought this was a, this was a joke, they're all uh, looking at it now and saying, uh, wow, things are really coming together for you. Well, they're coming together. I don't know to what extent they're coming together, but they're all, they are coming together. And I've never given up on it. And uh, no one should ever give up on uh, something that they believe in. Work hard. Believe in yourself when others aren't believing in you. And uh, good things will happen. Do you have any advice for man or woman that's on probation or parole or is currently sitting in jail on how to, once they're done with their debt to society, on how to reinvigorate themselves, get back into the citizenships and all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, if you've paid your debt to society, you have to recognize you committed a mistake. You have to take the time to uh, earn society's trust back. It's not going to be easy, uh, nor should it be easy. You committed a wrong against society. Society is uh, distrustful of you. Ha they have the right to be distrustful of you. You have to work to gain that trust back. Uh, it's going to be a long road in some cases. Some people are going to naturally accept you back. Others, you're going to have to work very hard to gain that trust back. But do what you have to do to gain the trust back. And eventually, uh, it will come together for you. But uh, don't give up on society because people basically are good. The majority of people out there are good people, and they will—they uh, are willing, in most cases, to give you a second chance, depending on the nature of your original crime. But don't give up on society, because society as a whole will not give up on you. I like that. So, to buy Sergeant Ron Stallworth's book, you can go to blackclansman.com. You can go to Amazon. Go to the book section, type in Black Klansman, it will pop right up, or Ron Stallworth, S-T-A-L-L-W-O-R-T-H. You can call him at 801-898-6953, or you can email him, ronstall at aol.com, and we will put all this information on the blog. For any police and fire peoples that are interested in publishing books, go to policeandfirepublishing.com. And I really appreciate you coming to the University of Utah, teaching us about you, about your experiences, and most importantly, I thank you for serving, you know, as a police officer. You know, it's, it's kind of you to do. My pleasure, and I've enjoyed the experience, and good luck to all of you listeners out there, and uh, go Utes!
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and we will go to break right now. When we get back, we will have the very funny and talented comedian Patrick Ramirez. So thank you, everybody. We appreciate you. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. Bright blessed days, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonder. 